Ephesians, and we're going to ask the Lord to hopefully open up his word. I want to talk about love and the fullness of God and how his love enables us to partake of his fullness. <clears throat> there are just certain words in the Christian vocabulary that are just impossible to really fully define. So we can know the characteristics, the general sense of words, but we cannot fully grasp the meaning of these individual words. They're simply too big and too vast. You can only grasp it, excuse me, let me turn this off here. You can only grasp it as you know it and God makes you able to comprehend it. As long as you search for the meaning of these words, you just, there are certain words that we, we just never really get to the bottom of, we never really can perceive in our life. So I've loved Beth for the past 29 years, and you know what amazes me is how small I am, really, when I think of love and how big it is. You know, when you have the greatest love in your life and you realize it is so much past you, you realize that there are things within love that we as human beings can only partly grasp. There's a love that God speaks of here that I want to look at this morning that is not just human love. It's actually divine love. And that divine love has an infinite depth to it. There's a breadth to it that is beyond human comprehension and ability. But God says through the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we can come to know it and grasp it in some sense. And as we do grasp that love of God, we become filled with the very fullness of God. So that as Jesus is, so we are. As he is, we are in this world through the love that God makes possible to you and I. Let's pray for the sermon. Father, for the preaching of the word, we pray now. We pray that you would open our hearts, Father, and that you would enable us to comprehend who we are in Christ, that we might access the rich provision that you have given us in Jesus Christ, that we might experience the love that you are, the love that you have, and the love that we can know. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> For you and I as believers... One of the great privileges of our lives is simply to be able to grab a hold of this divine love of God. So when we come to the book of Ephesians, what we have in front of us um, are several prayers by the Apostle Paul. He is speaking to the church, which is in ancient Turkey. The Ephesian Christians in the church at Ephesus look to uh, Paul as their spiritual dad. He led them to Christ and brought them together and formed them as a church. So towards the end of his second missionary journey, he stayed for a while, but couldn't stay very long. So he left Aquila and Priscilla at the church, and they grew the church and developed the church. He came back through in his third missionary journey and stayed for over three years. And at that time, the church began to really grow. And he developed a very close and personal relationship with the people in the church at Ephesus. And so he writes to them, and it's, the book of Ephesians is called a prison epistle because while Paul is later imprisoned after his third missionary journey, he writes this letter to them because he wants them to have the best that they could possibly have in Christ. 
He doesn't want them to live as spiritual beggars. He wants them to experience the richness and the privilege of the Christian life. And he knows they will only have that through the love of God. Now, it's important to note that as Paul is writing the New Testament epistles, I want to take a little sidetrack here, that virtually everything that is written is written to believers who are active members of local New Testament churches, regenerated people who have come into the fellowship of a community. Really, the only other thing that's left other than that is admonitions to the unsaved. Here's messages to the unsaved and why she gets saved. That's really a very, very small part. Virtually none of the New Testament is written actually to believers who are not faithful members of churches because it is so aberrant, if I could use a, um, use a secular term, weird spiritually, that to be born again and to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and to be led by God will immediately lead believers who are open to God's will into the community of believers, always. There's, there's no exceptions to that. When somebody says that they are saved and they are not congregating with other believers and relating to other believers, coming out of the world but becoming closer to Christ in a New Testament community, when they're not doing that, there is something that is very, very strange that is happening in their life. We see this pattern throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy 12, we see God bringing the tabernacle together. And the Jews were not free to worship on every hill or in every valley wherever they wanted to. God said, here is the place that you are to worship. And then in minute detail, God gave them the golden candlestick, the altar of incense, the holy of holies. He gave them the brazen altar. Here's where they were to do their sacrifices. He specified very precisely how everything was to be done. He had his particular priest, Old Testament Aaronic priest and Levites, who were, who were called and commissioned to do that work. He even talked about their robes, how they were to dress, what they were to be like. So God was very, very particular with the Jews about how they were to congregate socially and connect through this one location, through this one group of leaders, through these particular ordinances that he gave them. So when we come into the New Testament and we come into... Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. And as soon as he does that, the Jews have rejected him. He begins to build this New Testament organization, this New Testament grouping. It's a called out assembly. He gives it leadership, bishops or pastor teachers who can be assisted by deacons. It has a particular shape. It is guided by the teaching and principles of the New Testament. And really what you have in the New Testament is simply God explaining to believers in New Testament churches how they're to live. He's speaking directly to believers within that New Testament community. Here is what is to guide you. Here is how you are to build your families. Here's what your marriage is to look like. Here is what your relationships with the world should be like. He's talking to these believers who've come out of the world and are becoming really strict separatists. They're very separated from the world and very much a part of the New Testament. To not be in church is to live contrary to virtually everything that is said to a New Testament believer in the New Testament. Actually, there's almost nothing said because to be outside of the New Testament is to be in a place, to be outside of a local New Testament church and you're saved 
is to be in a place of judgment, really a place of condemnation. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll show you a quick picture of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 11. Notice what he says here. There was a situation within the church or the community where one of the believers who was a member of that community was living in immorality. And because they're living in immorality, they cannot participate in the fellowship of that group. They cannot be a part of that group because of their immorality. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5 11, but now I have written unto you to not to keep company. If any man be called a brother, someone that's saved is a fornicator. They're living in sex outside of marriage. Or they're, they're, they're ruled by covetousness, materialism, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one not, no, not to eat. So God saves believers, and he gives them the privilege of being part of a spiritual community. This is where they belong. This is where they connect. This is where God works in them, and they grow as a believer. To not be part of that community is actually to be in the place of judgment. Because what God does is, when a believer persists in sin, when a believer persists in fornication, the church is to come together and to vote him out or her out of their membership. And their punishment is that they are not allowed inside the church. You see, we are to judge those that are within because God judges those who are without. We are responsible to police our ranks because God is the one who, who punishes those who are without. Look what he says in verse, verse 12. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? In other words, those that are outside of the church, that's God's remit. That's his place. But notice what he says. Do not ye judge them that are within. So if somebody says they're a brother and they're persisting in, in a, just as a, a terrible drunkard or an extortioner, then we are to judge them. They cannot be part of our fellowship. Verse 13, but them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among you that wicked person. So God says, put away from them, put them without. What he's saying here is, to be outside of the church is to be outside of God's blessing, of his provision, of the place that he's given you to grow. And the church does that. They put out from them, they remove those who will not live according to biblical standards. The removal of being outside in the world is their judgment. They are outside. So the hope is that they will repent and come back so that they can become part of a New Testament church. So I'm just making a parallel point here that believers in a New Testament church are normal. That is very, very normal. So you're in a church and you're connecting with other believers. You're reading the word. You're serving. You have a ministry. You're loving other people. You're witnessing to other people, inviting other people. You're encouraging, building other believers. You're giving. You're active. That is the normal part of a New Testament believer, normal part of a church. But to not be that is to be outside, which is weird. I mean, why would you want to be, if you're a believer and you love the Lord, why would you want to be outside of the New Testament church? I mean, that's where the unsaved are. 
I mean, that's where God judges. That's where those things happen. So as you're reading here, he's talking about the love of God and the potential for that being realized in our life. But he is speaking to a very particular group. He's speaking to believers, active in New Testament community, actively growing in their relationship with the Lord. Now, he loves these Ephesian believers, but spiritually, they're struggling. And he wants to see them growing. And he knows what they need. They need the love of God to be realized within them. They need that power that makes that love possible in their life. And that all begins with them understanding, now that they're saved and in a New Testament church, having a really, really clear picture of who and what they are. So to access the miraculous love of God, we have to be clear on that. So look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. He describes who God is. He begins to give a doctrinal treatise. Here is God's nature. Here is redemption. Here is the doctrine of salvation based on a knowledge of who God is. In chapter 2, he begins to get a little bit closer. And he begins to show us that we need this salvation. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 1. And it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And what that means is that God gives life because all of us enter into this world dead in our sins, dead in religious dogma, dead in the philosophy of atheism and secularism that encompasses us. We are dead in our sin, in our trespasses, and we have no hope of, of, of eternal life, no hope of God except what he has provided. So he says in verse 2, to give a little bit more detail, where it in time past, before you got saved, you walked according to the path, the course, the philosophy of this world. That's what you knew and that's what guided you. That is what you were accepted and that is the way that you viewed life. But that course, that path of this world was led by the prince of the power of the air. Air is invisible to us. So the prince of the power of spiritual darkness, the air that we cannot see, Satan, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, that spirit, or the spirit, that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So we were dead in our sins, and we were walking according to the path, the philosophy and values of this world, dead, we were led by the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And all that he declared was right was wrong. And all that he said was wrong with gospel and wrong with God was actually right. We were dead in our sins. And then he goes on in verse 3. He makes it more personal. He says, Among whom we all had our manner of living in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So conversation is an old word for lifestyle. So we all had our manner of living. We all participated in this. So this philosophy, this, this path that Satan is leading is not external to us. We were, before we were saved, on that path. We were going in that way. 
we were the children of wrath, fulfilling the desires of our minds, carrying thoughts of selfishness, thoughts of arrogance, thoughts of lust, thoughts of violence, carrying the lust in our minds and in our flesh. But verse 4 is where we turn the corner. But God, but God, seeing us lost in our sin, without hope, subject to his wrath because of our sin, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. That's awesome. Because of the great love of God, he was willing to not give us what we deserve. Because of the great love of God, he was willing to give us what we so needed. He was, able to, he was willing to give us the salvation. For verse 5, for even when we were dead in sins, through faith in Jesus Christ, which he says in verse 7 and 8, even when we were dead in sins, he quickened us. He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you're saved. The mercy and the love of God is simply beyond our ability to see. God who is infinite and holy, God who is beyond comprehension, would step down and take notice of you and I in our sins, and he would redeem us. He would forgive us. He would make it possible for us to be forgiven and know him and love him and walk with him, he alone could do that. But not only that, he loved us and gave us a future. Verse 6, and hath raised us together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So he has made us to sit together with him in heaven. It talks about his plan and his future, that he has a provision for your life that stretches beyond your current situation, that, that morphs right into eternity, where he envisions you sitting together with him in heavenly places. That is pretty cool. His love is what made that possible. Look at that in, in verse 7 he says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For all of eternity we will give utterance to the greatness of God's love in giving Jesus Christ. God has given what was most precious, what was most needed by you and I and for all of eternity, we will praise him for giving Jesus Christ because we were dead in our sins, walking according to the course of this world. But God, in his great love, wherewith he hath loved us, he provided a way for sin to be forgiven and for you and I to have a relationship with him. That salvation is realized through faith. Verse 8 of Ephesians 2, for by grace God loves you and gives you what you don't deserve. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's all of him, 
It's all undeserved and unearned favor. God loves us. He reaches out to us. And he makes it possible for us to be saved. And all we must do is turn from our sin and believe on Jesus Christ. Depend on his death and resurrection as the payment for that sin. For by grace are ye saved through dependence. We don't grow up knowing it. We don't, we don't morph into it. There is a point in time where we are born again, where we are convicted of our sin. And we turn in saving faith and trust in his death and resurrection. And we are miraculously born anew. We then have a new heart and a new nature and a new future because of the potential that he has created within us. So he says in verse number 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He has adopted you and I and made us a part of his family so that we now manifest these good works, whether we are a Gentile, whether we are from Africa, whether we are from Asia, whether we are from Europe or North America, he has adopted us into his family and given us a work that we should do. We are now his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus with a different destiny, a different outcome. There's a different path to our life now. We are created, we are his workmanship, created onto his glorious good works. And that is what occupies us, and that is what keeps us where we need to be. <clears throat> so in verse 11, he begins to spell out the change a little bit, and we'll skip over to chapter 3 here in a minute. He says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So speaking of the Jews, who believed they were the, his chosen people, and you and I were outside of the covenant, outside of the promise. And he says to you and I, we are no longer second class. We are no longer outside. We are brought in to the covenant, brought in to the promise. We are now children of promise. Verse 12, <clears throat> that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens, strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. And he's, he's just revealing that um, God gave the gospel to the Jews. He gave the, he gave his, he worked through them. And in time past, we would have to have come through the nation of Israel to know him, through their law, through their word. But now we come directly to him. Though we were aliens and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world, he then transformed. But now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, ye who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. You see, what he wants them to know is that they now have the full right and privilege as a child of God to all that God is giving them. They now have access to it. They are not outside of this covenant, outside of this promise. They, as the children of God, have that privilege. It is not for someone else. It is not for another time. It is not for another person. It is for them. He wants them to understand who they are. 
They are in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does indwell them. God is providing for them. And they now can grow in that relationship. Now, a logical understanding that he gives in chapter 2 is important. What they were, what they now are. But in chapter 3, he's going to show us experientially how we can partake of this love. Look at chapter 3 and verse 14. For this cause I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. If you're saved, you're part of that family. You were walking according to the course of this world, but now you're redeemed. You are part of the family of God. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. I remember when Beth's mom died several years ago. She went back to the funeral in Baldwinsville, New York, upstate New York, kind of near Syracuse. And there was a reception afterwards that was just for the family members. It was a private invitation, and no one else could come but the close family members. And it was part of her privilege to be a part of that group with her dad and her brothers and sisters and some of the extended family that lived in that area as they celebrated her mother's, her grandmother's life. Um, this was a privilege. So in the same way, God gives you a privilege. You who are saved, you who know the Lord, you who are members of a New Testament church, he gives you this privilege of accessing this love. He's qualifying that this is not given to everyone. It is given to you and I, believers, who've been adopted into his family and are now a part of his work. So the things that God gives for us or makes possible to us are exclusive. They're not given to everybody else. They're given to you, though. And you can possess and you can own these things. It's a pretty powerful thing. Because only the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can make that possible in your life. Look at verse number 16. Notice what he says. That he, the Father, would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And in other words, the Father, according to the immensity of eternity, according to the richness that is part of his glorious nature, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit or the Holy Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and that you being, or ye being rooted and grounded in love. So he wants you to grasp this love. See, he's talking about agape love, divine love of God. And he's saying that the Father grants it. So the Father, from his glorious nature, he grants you and I the possibility the Son, through salvation, establishes us. He grounds us in that love. And the Holy Spirit then empowers the inner man so that the inner man can possess that love. He can operate within that love. By the way, it's interesting to note that we have the Trinity here. In verse 16, that he is the Father. His Spirit, in verse 16, is the Holy Spirit. And the Christ, Christ is the Son in verse 17. So the word Trinity, though never used in the, Old, in the New Testament, is found throughout the New Testament. 
constantly, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are combined and revealed to you and I. What he wants you to know is that it's just beyond your human abilities or intellect to grab the love of God. That you cannot get it. Andrew, I remember when he was growing up, he came to the day where I would trust him with the lawnmower. Now, if you're a dad and <clears throat> you've got a son and you need the grass cut, um, those have big, powerful blades spinning under these mowers, and you don't want them to get their toes chopped or something like that. And so he came to the time where he was, he was okay. We had a Petro mower, and I remember him trying to start the mower, <clears throat> but he could not do it. And he was out there for a while pulling that ripcord and getting frustrated. Andrew's a very focused type, black and white type person. And he's like, I'm going to get this thing going. And even though he's a little boy, he's like, he can't do it. He can't do it. It's just not pie. He just can't get it started. And the reason why is because he didn't prime it. On the front, there was this little plastic um, rubber cover. And if you pressed it, it, it it injected fuel into the carburetor so that when you now pulled it, It had the extra fuel to start. So all I did was just press that little plunger a few times and gently pull it, and it started. But he didn't know that. It was beyond his capability or capacity to know how to actually start the mower. In the very same way, you're born dead in this world. You don't have the capacity to know him or to experience his love. This is the exclusive privilege of those that God has redeemed who, who are grounded in love through salvation and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that is the possibility of you and I. Notice in verse 16, he says, strengthen with might by his spirit in the inner man. The word might there is the, is the Greek word dunamos. It means explosive power. It means vast, strong power. And he's speaking of you and I and and the influence of the Holy Spirit upon our lives, strengthened with that explosive power in our spirit, in the inner man. You and I now have the capacity to comprehend, to grasp the love of God, which he's speaking here that it's really pretty amazing rooted and grounded in love, we have that capacity which is so transformational. Look with me in 1 John. Keep your finger there in Ephesians 3, but look in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16. Notice what he says. Actually, we'll go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 16. Speaking of believers, he's saying, and we have known and believed the love that God hath for us. We've known it. We've believed it. We've, we've acknowledged it openly that God has love for us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. And God in him. What is he saying? If you're a believer, you know that God is love, this divine agape love. And if you're connected to him, if you're relating to him, kind of abiding in him, and he's abiding in you, that love is present. That love is always a part 
of that connection and relationship because he is that love. That is his characteristic. That is who he is. God is love, and he that dwelleth in God dwelleth in him. So if you're knowing God, you're also knowing his love. If you're growing deeper with God in your understanding of God and your comprehension of him, you are also simultaneously growing in your experience of love, in your possession of this divine love that he has for you. It is blossoming within you and making your life something it couldn't be any other way. Look what he says in verse 17 about this love within us. Herein is the love that God has within us made perfect. Here's how we are made perfect by this love. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. What does he mean? He means that as the love of God is in us, we are made complete and therefore fruitful. And therefore in the day of judgment, we don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be hiding from it. The love of God was manifested through us. And we, therefore, have boldness in the day of judgment. And look what he says at the end of verse 17. Because as he is, so are we in this world. That's pretty cool. What he's saying there is that because you have his love as a believer, because you are now equipped, you are saved, you are set apart, that love makes you as he is. He is perfect righteousness. He is the Lord. As he is, we now are. We now are as he is. Why? Because we've comprehended. Because we have grasped the tip of that divine, immense agape love. The love of God is now reigning within us. And we are now as he is through that love. You see, without that love, we are nothing. Without that love, we don't know him. We are not walking with him. We do not have his power. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1 through 3. Notice what he says about this really quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. And every time you see the word charity there, it's, behind it is the word agape love, the love of God. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels... And have not this agape love of God. I'm become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I could preach for days and years and months. But if I don't have agape love, it is empty and it is hollow. You could witness to people. You could teach people about God. But if it is not wrapped and bathed in the love of God, it is empty. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity or this agape love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. We can have the right words. We can say the right things. We can have the right commitment. We can do the right things. But if it is not filled out with a complete expression of love, 
In other words, if it is not done with the agape love of God, it does not have the result and end that it must have. You realize this is what makes you and I different than every other religion and every other person in this world. That within this room, there is a potential for agape love, that deep, rich love of God, that that can be realized in our life so that as he is, we are. And as that love is realized through us, it transforms and revolutionizes us and the ministry that we are a part of. And without that love, we are nothing. We are just the same as everyone else. That love is the manifestation. It is the realization of it. Look back in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17. Notice what he says. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all other believers, with all saints, what is the breadth and length and depth and height to personally, intimately, experientially know the love of Christ, which passes or surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. In verse 18 and 19, the word comprehend means to lay a hold of, so as to seize it and make it your own. So you're, you're grabbing it so that it's now yours. The word know means to perceive in a sense of a personal, close, intimate knowledge of something. So Christ is dwelling in our hearts and we're seizing it. We're getting it. Through the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, we are grabbing a hold of that love. It's being realized within us. And as that is happening, the fullness of God, the completeness of God is being revealed or manifested through our lives. So that love is begin to what, be what characterizes us. Now notice he uses a fourth dimension here. When you look at um, your luggage to see if it will fit on the plane, it is measured by length and width and depth. So everything within our dimension is length, width, or depth. Those three dimensions describe area. But he speaks of breadth, which is a fourth dimension. He's speaking of the spiritual capability to see God, who is beyond this dimension. He has a love that is supernatural, and makes it the possibility of a believer in in this realm to have that love. So he makes that possible to you and I. He roots us and grounds us in Jesus Christ and it enlightens us by his spirit so that we can seize it and know it closely and intimately so that we now have a knowledge of God and an experience of God that is beyond human knowledge. One time I was walking on the beach and I saw a shell that was turned upside down, but it was filled with the water of the ocean. The ocean, with its unfathomable depth and breadth and hugeness, had filled, completely filled this little shell. And so too with you and I. Out of the immensity of God's love, the depth of God's love, which we will never plumb, you and I can be filled with that love. And when we do, we possess the fullness of God. 
the completeness of God is now realized within our small frame, within our little person. We have of his fullness. We possess his perfect and amazing love in our life. And we then become the person that we could not become any other way. So as we abide in Jesus Christ, we remain in him and are filled by the Spirit, the possibility of this love becomes very real. So always be careful of somebody who offers a magic bullet that says, here's how you have it, one, two, three. It's not that way. It's a relationship. It's based on you knowing who you are in Jesus Christ, that you are redeemed, that you were a child of the devil. I mean, you were the, the, the child of wrath. He redeemed you because of his great love. He gave you a future. And now he gives you the possibility of having his fullness. Through the Spirit, we begin to see and sense that immense divine love. And we possess that love. And we become as he is. In this world, we are what he is through that love. It's really pretty cool. Pretty amazing is what he's saying here. How can you become as he is? How can you in your home this afternoon, in your work tomorrow, be as he is? Grasp that love. Possess that love. Walk in that agape love of God. Let that be what marks you, what fills you, what you are. And as he is, so you will be in this world. Let's pray.